This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome to the Out of Water Podcast. I am your host, Sam Kasten-Smith. Not typically your host, but today I am your host, and I have with me the most beautiful guest, and it's not Mark. (laughs) It is my wife, Laura. And so today we're going to be talking about Mark chapter 6, which is chock full of a lot of really amazing, very famous stories. So I'm excited to dig into this one. I'm excited to be here today. I was really nervous, and it was a hard no at first. But then as I thought about it, I'm like, well, you know, I'm glad to help out. Uh, Mark, we're thinking about you. We miss you. And um, yeah, excited. I was going to say it makes a big difference, I think, to be studying the word to have to talk about it than to just read it for myself. So it was good for me to read through this passage and think, what would I say about this? So, hey, it's good. Yeah, for those of you who have been praying for Mark, just an update as of today's recording. So this is Wednesday. Uh, He went to the pulmonologist and found that he had a lung that was 20% the size that it was supposed to be and filled with fluid. Uh, This morning, he went in and they drained two liters. Imagine a two-liter jug, and it was filled with fluid from his lung. So he tells me that he's already breathing better. He had an appetite. He was going home to nap. And so from here, uh, the doctors will be running tests to determine what the the cause of all this was. So continue to be praying for Mark and his wife, Tracy, and all that they're walking through right now. And hopefully, um, as much as I really enjoy doing a podcast with my wife, if Mark is back, that means he's better, and I'm rooting for that. Come back, Mark. (laughs) I'm also rooting for that. (laughs) Yes, I was going to say, very much rooting for that. Okay, so jumping into Mark chapter 6. Um, Like I said, there's five major stories in this chapter, and all of them are rich. And so the first one is when Jesus is going back to his hometown of Nazareth. And so to understand where Nazareth is, like all the other cities that he's going to, Jesus and his ministry, he does 70% of his ministry on the Sea of Galilee. So cities like Bethsaida and Capernaum and and, uh, Magdala and all these cities that he goes into are right on the coast of Galilee. Nazareth is actually set away from Galilee, the sea, quite a bit, maybe a 20-mile walk or so to the west. And so it's not one of the common cities that Jesus goes in and out of during his active ministry, but it is the city that he grew up in. And so you got to imagine if you're one of the people that, you know, watched Jesus grow up and he was a five-year-old and a 17-year-old and, you know, he's working in the father's business. And at 30 years old, he decides, you know what, I'm going to start my ministry. He goes and is baptized in the Jordan River. And then the next time he comes back home, he's got a following that's claiming that he's the Messiah and the Son of God. And you've never seen any of this before. Um, and that's where we see in, in Mark chapter 6 some of the rejection that Jesus faces from his own people, from those that are closest to him. And so Mark chapter six, verse one, it says, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. So that's not just the 12. He's got an entourage, a crowd that's like, man, this guy's miraculous. Oh my goodness. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works being done by his hands? 
isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and, and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not all of his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. It kind of makes me wonder in this, you know, there's, I think there's some gospels that were written that were supposedly telling about the, the childhood of Jesus, where he did miraculous, weird things. I mean, mm-hmm. in the Apocrypha. And it is curious why none of Jesus's early history was recorded, really. Um, but this makes it sound like it wasn't Jesus going around doing miraculous things growing up or being something remarkable, which, you know, I'm sure he stood out because he was perfect that would stand out in the crowd but righteousness would stand out in this world (laughs) but just the fact that they didn't expect anything like this from him meant that he grew up pretty unremarkably and quietly which is fascinating to me um, for somebody who is god in the flesh that he wouldn't kind of be on the radar before 30 years old yeah and what it does is it makes him even more relatable you know it's not just that he pops on the scene and goes through life you know i am the son of god you know with He can relate to the mundane. He knows what it's like to, to earn a paycheck and have to pay bills and taxes and, and to be kind of sucked into ordinary life and neighborhood squabbles and, <laughs> you know, all those stresses and of the mundane that we deal with. That's why these people don't get it because they've seen him for 30 years in the mundane. Yeah. And now he's coming back and it's like, okay, for those 30 years, God had not started my ministry, but now this is something extraordinary. And they're like, I don't think so. And they're not even, I don't think so. They're offended, which is an interesting choice of word. I saw that and I thought, why, why would they have such an intense emotional reaction? Because it's one thing to be interested or intrigued or kind of skeptical, but another thing to be, to take offense at him. Mm -hmm. Why do you think they were offended by what he was doing? If that's the right meaning of the word, there's a different way. Well, one, it's a, it's a shock. You know, if you know somebody, even if, you know, you know somebody as a righteous person, you've never seen them or known them to do anything wrong, but all of a sudden they're claiming to be the Son of God yeah, sure. and the Savior of the world and the Messiah that's been written about in the Scriptures from Genesis 3 on. Right. It's like, who do you think you are? I mean, so there's some level as a religious person where that's offensive, but beyond that, I remember when I came to faith, you know, I was overzealous right out of the gates, you know, like sharing all the time about the gospel and my brothers like i noticed like you know my life had changed i started having hope in different things and i was walking away from certain behaviors and you know the fact that i wasn't drinking anymore like i used to and i wasn't doing all these things like i used to bothered them and it was like you think you're better than us you know are Mm. you holier than thou now and anytime i did stumble or say use bad language or or do anything wrong, it was like, oh, yeah, you're a real good Christian, you know? And so, you know, I think there's some of that where it's like, who do you think you are? Yeah. Kind of almost, I'm, I'm, look at me, I'm great kind of mm-hmm. feeling coming through. It is an interesting f- moment here because, you know, you talk about it is hard to go home sometimes and how, you know, I remember talking with my, my sister-in-law and she was saying she had heard one time that when somebody has a major life change to where they change, for example, become a Christian or kind of make a decision to walk in a different path, um, it takes, I don't know where she got the statistics, kind of random, but she said it takes about seven years for that to finally make its way into the family. And I find that so fascinating because it's true. I kind of, I go out and I do my thing and I live my life and I get married and I have kids and then I go back home and I'm the same person. I'm the same, the same dynamics pop out, the same, 
older sister, too good for you, I have everything figured out kind of attitude comes out in full force. And it's like, where did that come from? I thought I'd killed that a long time ago. But something about home, something about going home makes things a little bit uh, different. Yeah, they, it's like they don't know that side of you. I remember hearing your dad tell the story of your oh, brother, yeah. Graham. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-oh. Careful. <laughs> but of your brother, Graham's graduation where he won the Christian <laughs> Character Award. And oh, yeah. everybody in the family is leaning forward, looking Wait, at each what? other like, our, our Graham? <laughs> and so it's like you don't know that side of the person when Christ really takes hold in their life and begins to change them in ways that you've never seen. And all of a sudden, they come back into your world. Even as fallen Christians, you know, it's like, whoa, I'm skeptical, I'm cynical, I resist that, it's kind of offensive, holier-than-thou stuff. And so imagine Jesus coming back, you know, having been a carpenter, the son of a woman who was thought to be, you know, scandalous, you know, he was thought of as a bastard child who was born out of wedlock, and now all of a sudden he's claiming to be the son of God, and everyone's going, look, like, we've tolerated you for 30 years, you're a good guy, you know, you don't lie. You you do the right things, but we we really know your beginnings. Hmm. This is yeah. shameful. You're claiming to be it's the Son of God. Yeah. It says that Jesus announced to them, "A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household." Hmm. And you talk to people who are coming to faith, and it's like there's almost some sense of buyer's remorse when you first come to faith because you've got to go tell everybody else that's known you as one way your whole life that now I'm a Christian and it's, it can feel embarrassing. Hmm. Yeah. I find it interesting here too, in verse five that he could not do, he could do no mighty work there. It's, it's almost like it calls back to the past chapters where Jesus commended people and healed people for faith. And we know, for example, you know, with the, um, the crazy man, what's the word? Demon possessed man. Demoniac. The yeah. demoniac that it, he didn't have any faith. And clearly the people around them didn't have any faith because they kicked him out as soon as they sent the demons into the pig. So it's not required to have that kind of faith to be healed. But it's like Mark doesn't want to let their, let that connection drop. Mm-hmm. That in some way there is a connection between faith and there is a, and, and healing. So I found that interesting here that there was some kind of, he was almost prevented because of their lack of belief. Yeah, and it says in verse 6, to your point, it says, he marveled Mm -hmm. because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. And I, you know, I was reading one of the commentaries, and it said, Jesus only marvels in the scriptures at the presence of faith or the absence Hmm. of faith. That's interesting. And so he lives in a culture where he goes into Jerusalem, he see, you know, his disciples are marveling over the buildings and the temples and, you know, people's wisdom and all this other stuff. But you'll never find Jesus going, oh my gosh, look at that painting, listen to this poem, look at those buildings. It says like the, the centurion who wants his servant to be healed, it says Jesus marveled at his faith. And in he, in this case, he's marveling at their unbelief. And so, like, he recognizes that faith is the one thing that matters for eternity. All the buildings and creativity of the hands of man, you know, they ultimately perish, you know, like with this world. But faith is the only thing that yields something everlasting. It is it is the means by which God builds an eternally beautiful picture in the lives of his people. And that's what Jesus marvels over. <laughs> and it's it's weird to think, you know, when somebody comes to faith— from the outside, 
it's like Jesus looks at that like it's this amazing thing. You know, death is being defeated, all the decay and withering of life, and an eternal sense dies at that moment. And it's like he's watching something come to life, and he just marvels when he sees authentic faith. And on the flip side, and this is the more convicting side, obviously, when he's among his people, when he's in his church, when he's in Israel, and they've been waiting thousands of years for his arrival, and they doubt him at every turn, and they they, they spurn him. On that side of the coin, he marvels at their unbelief. And, you know, it, there's <laughs> I can say that in my own life, like you look at that and you think, man, how often do I, you know, doubt his promises? How often do I stumble and think, you know, God, are you with me in this one? Can you deliver me here? Hmm. Or despairing and ignoring the fact that God is walking me through this and he's promised me good through this. And, you know, you, it's like yeah, I could just hear his like forehead slap and it's like, dude, I died <laughs> for you. <laughs> you know, like you can trust me. Have you forgotten all of the previous situations I've delivered you from? Mm-hmm. And it's like, here here he is. He marvels at our unbelief. It's convicting, too, on what I marvel at, you know, the kind of things that I value, the kind of things that I see yeah. as important. It really is a convicting reorienting of priorities is the kingdom of God and his and faith, seeing faith grow up in people. Is that what I pray for? Is that what I seek? Is that what I want in myself? Is that what I want in my kids? Um, I have a long prayer list that doesn't include those kinds of things, which aren't bad things, the things that are on my prayer list, but... Let that be what orients me, uh, what I marvel at, what I seek. So. And so that's the opening story. So that's story number one. We come to the the next story, and it's as he's going through these villages, he decides that he's going to prepare. He's training his 12 apostles to go out and to do ministry. And so it says in verse 7, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. So God always loves doing the two by two business. Um, he did that in the beginning with creation, with the animals and everything else. So here he's sending out his apostles two by two, and he gave them authority over clean spirits. You'll remember in a previous episode, Mark and I were talking about the difference between apostles and disciples. And, and there's a number of them, but one of them, an apostle is commissioned by Jesus to have authority to cast out demons. So if you're, I'm, I'm a disciple. I pray to God and I can ask God to deliver people. But the apostles are commissioned and given authority over the unclean spirits. They have authority to cast out the unclean spirits. And so he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. They could no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Why do you think that is? Goodness, I was thinking that must have a lot to do with faith again. <laughs> the thing that he marvels at is training up in them this dependence, this God will meet my needs, I assume, mm-hmm. um, and also some kind of dependence on God, but also dependence on people who are open to the teaching. You know, if somebody's interested in hearing more, they will provide. But if somebody's like, no, this is not what I want to hear, they won't necessarily give you bread in a bag unless it's to send you on your way. Hmm. That's good. One of the other things is, is this is kind of the antithesis of the prosperity gospel preachers, right? I know. Like you're not going to show up in the town with your new Ferrari and the <laughs> finest clothes and be like, hey, come and join my, me and you can have a life like this. My private jet coming in. Yeah, right. Like they, they show up and they look like paupers. They got no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, mm-hmm. but they're inviting everybody to come to Jesus. And with that, it's kind of like, you know, you get Jesus, 
Hmm. It's it's not wealth. It's not prosperity necessarily in the earthly sense. Look at us. Like, we don't even have a second tunic, you know. But it's also, like you said, I think even more so a call to trust. Like, I'm going to send you out with nothing, and I want you to trust that you're going to be provided for. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from it, which seems kind of self-evident, right? (laughs) Stay until you go. Stay there until you leave. All right, I think I can do that. (laughs) And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. What's that about? That is a good question. You beat me to the question. (laughs) So I think what it's saying is, if, if you're going in to do ministry, there's a lot of times where when we come in, we feel ownership, right? Like, I am responsible for saving this person, and I can't let them go. I can't open my hands and trust them with the Lord after I've done everything I know how. I've shared the gospel. I've loved them. I've poured out to them. There's a lot of us who are like, we feel torment until that person comes to the Lord. We feel responsibility. But I think what Jesus is saying here is like, if, if they don't receive you, if they're not going to listen to you, when you leave, I want you to leave that behind. That's no longer your responsibility. And the dust in particular, all through the scripture, anytime you find dust, it's always symbolic of death. And so if they reject the message of life, when you leave their house, I want you to leave that death behind don't let it follow you don't let it weigh on you don't let it curse you you know i don't want it to be a burden on you leave it behind like trust me with it and leave it behind that's my that's my best guess it makes me wonder you know where that applies today because i wonder at what point you're ready to shake the dust off your feet at what point do you know that somebody has said nope this is not it um and you know, I think from later passages, you also get that you, when somebody falls into sin or in some way rejects the gospel of Christ, you know, treat him as an unbeliever, which means that you continue to pray, you continue to hope. But it's that feeling of responsibility, that feeling of this is mine to own. Yeah, we've remember my brother Mike. I can remember when we were pretty newly married and we were in an outback restaurant talking with my brother Mike about the gospel. And he told me that when I first came to faith, I was so zealous about always talking about Jesus that he began to avoid me. And there's some sense in which you can press in so hard that you actually start being counterproductive. Um, if somebody's rejecting it and they've, they've given it a fair hearing, they understand it and they're still rejecting it, leave it alone. You know, when Jesus says, don't cast pearls before swine, that's one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible, we tend to read that and hear, oh, what Jesus is saying is the gospel's too precious to give to those people. They're just garbage. They're swine. That's not what it means at all. When it says don't cast your pearls before swine, it's because those the swine will eat it. And when it's chewing up pearls, guess what it's going to do to their teeth? Not good for it. it their teeth are going to be shattered. They're going to break. They're going to be wounded by this. <laughs> and so you can come and throw pearls. And if the person doesn't understand what to do with the pearls, it can injure them. Like if my ze- my zeal actually wounded my brother's ability to receive any kind of message of faith. And so, you know, there, there's there's a wisdom about this. And so if they're not receiving it, shake the dust off. Don't let it sit on your shoulders as though you're responsible. You're not. The Holy Spirit is. But leave them and trust and trust them to God. Continue to pray for them. Hope that another messenger has more success. But don't go overboard to where you actually repel them from the gospel. Yeah. So it says, when they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. 
Does that sound like John to you? Yeah, right. They're becoming John. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. More so yeah, than that. Jesus, though. It's almost like a John message. Jesus talked a lot about a bunch of things, but that repent because the kingdom of God is here seems more like a like a John kind yeah. of message. That's that's definitely me. John's wheelhouse. <laughs> that's that's like his his have message will travel sermon, right? <laughs> and so they cast out many demons, which is wild. So they are going out. Jesus is nowhere with them, and they're casting out demons, and they're anointing with oil many who are sick. And it healed them. Mm-hmm. And so apart from Jesus, these these apostles are doing some pretty amazing things. And so that's that's another one of these stories. And so we get to the third one. And this one's really difficult. So this is going to be about the death of John the Baptist in verse 14. It says, when King Herod heard of it. So all this stuff is, you know, blowing up. Jesus's name is becoming a big deal. It says, when King Herod heard of it, for Jesus's name had become known some can, said, "Can I stop you right there?" Yeah. Who's uh, King Herod? Because I feel like there's another King Herod. There's a lot of King Herods. There's a lot of Herods. <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of. We do have a lot of Herods in this. <laughs> so who is this person? All right. So King Herod the Great. If you go back, like remember him at the birth story of Jesus. He's the one that killed the babies. That's right. He's the one who killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. He had been around for a long time. He was made king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. Um, and he had a lot of power. He died, if you'll remember, when Jesus flees to Africa, when Joseph and Mary take him to Africa, to Egypt, when Herod's killing the baby boys. They don't come back until they hear that Herod the Great, which is like the worst name for him. He's he's <laughs> not great at all. But he did a lot of building projects and was tremendously wealthy. Uh, so they come back, and Herod's authority was then passed on to his three sons, and one of them is Herod Archelaus, and he reigned and ruled over Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. Then you had Herod Antipas, which is this guy, who was the king over the region of Galilee. And then you had another one whose name is Philip that you read about, um, but he doesn't play into a lot of the biblical stories. And so Herod Antipas got the portion of Herod the Great's kingdom as a son that was in Galilee. And okay. so this is the one who has the most interaction with with Jesus. Got it. Thank you. And so King Herod hears of all the stuff that Jesus is doing. And so some are saying, hey, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work within him. And so others are saying, okay, so some say he's John the Baptist. Others are saying he's Elijah because he's doing all these miracles that are remarkably similar to Elijah. He's raising the dead. He's as we'll see, he's multiplying bread. He's he's doing all these things that Elijah did. Others are saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. You know, you think maybe Jeremiah or Isaiah or somebody. They know something is really, really fascinating about this guy. Um, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So Herod Antipas is like, oh my gosh, he's coming back. This is my judgment. He's coming against me. A sign of a guilty conscience, maybe? Yeah, you think? <laughs> For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he'd married her. And so one of the things you find out about John the Baptist, if you do a study on him, is he had absolutely no qualms and no hesitation about confronting people with power. So when the, we're told, like, when the Roman soldiers come and he's baptizing people, he confronts them and says, you're taking bribes. Like, you need to stop doing that. When the, when the religious leaders and the Pharisees show up, he's like, he's super, like, intense. And he's like, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath of hell? You know, calls them vipers and all this stuff. Bold guy. Yeah, he's bold. And so here he's actually confronting the king because the king had 
had taken his brother's wife and which, married her. Which we assume the brother's still alive. Yeah. Okay. He's just not as strong a king. Got it. And so he's scandalous, like adulterous, and he's he's passing himself off as a Jewish king, which they really weren't. They were actually from the line of the Edomites more so. But anyway, scandalous, right? So John has like no qualms being like, hey, king, who has all the authority to kill me? You're an adulterer. You need to stop, right? says, for John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. It's interesting that Herod is actually open to what John is saying there. You would think that he would be closed off to it, especially if he has um, so much power, wealth, whatever. But it's like he's fascinated with something that's outside of himself, fascinated by something bigger and more transcendent. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not willing to yield to it. He won't surrender. But he knows that there's something special about Jesus. And if you, if you know the passion story, when Jesus is brought on trial before Pilate, and he, you know, they, he, Pilate realizes he's a Galilean. And that's when Pilate's like, oh, good. You know, well, that's Herod Antipas's jurisdiction. And he sends Jesus before Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, again, is like excited to see Jesus because it's like, ooh, do a trick for me. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've heard yeah. all about you. You do amazing things. And he's more like excited to see, you know, like a magician or something than to recognize that he's standing before, you know, the, the son of God and mm-hmm. the same with John the Baptist here confronting King Herod. It's that same spirit like, Ooh, you're, you're an oddity. I'm fascinated. <laughs> Go on. Yeah. I said, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading man of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So and, she wasn't doing the electric slide? Is that what we're yeah, saying? That's, yeah, that's not the electric slide. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is really wicked times, and especially uh, throughout the world, um, this is, this is again, is, is meant to be scandalous. She's not doing the electric slide, yes. <laughs> uh, and the king said to that girl, hey, ask me. So it must have been a really good dance. <laughs> ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give to you up to half my kingdom, which I'm thinking, like, if you offer me that, I'm going to go big. Yeah, right? That's when I want to pull out the limo in the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> right? But she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? Well, if you're Herodias and you've got this preacher going around calling you an adulteress and accusing your husband of being in sin because he's married you, she's like, well, I have an idea. Uh, I'd like the head of John the Baptist. Hmm. It's colorful. Yeah, so the daughter comes back in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, because he's such an honest, noble man, this this Herod Antipas, and his guests did not want him to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. I thought it was interesting that you mentioned Pilate because that same kind of situation when Pilate was confronted with Jesus, he didn't want to have him killed. He said that he washed his hands of it, but the fear of the people, the fear of what would come was what drove him. And I was thinking about that for, for life and for myself and for people around me. It's very much, it's often that we get confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, or in this case, the truth of what God's word calls us to. 
and feel conviction, feel that, yes, this is what I should do. I know it 100%, but because of fear of other people, what they're going to think, um, fear of what might happen, we walk away or we say, yeah, never mind, that's a little bit too hard. But both of those men, when confronted with holiness, backed down and said, nope, let it, let them go. I'd rather kill them than have to submit to, um, than have to look shamed in front of other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so what happens here is the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in prison. And so John is killed. You know, this is Jesus's cousin. This has been his greatest champion. And to to your point, like, not only is Herod fascinated by him, but he knows that there's no guilt in him. You know, Pilate three times said, I can find no fault in this man talking about Jesus. And Herod is facing the same thing. And just like Jesus had a lot of followers, like when they arrested Jesus, they were afraid that the people would riot because he had a lot of people who who loved his ministry. Well, John, likewise, like we're told in the Gospels and in writings outside of the Gospels that all of Judea and all the surrounding territory were going to him to be baptized. People universally recognized him as a prophet and a righteous man. (laughs) And so for Herod to be guilty of his death is going to bring a is going to waste a lot of political capital mm-hmm. with the people when they find out that he's beheaded John the Baptist, whom the people love. And it's not even just a you know John disappears in the middle of the night kind of thing. This is a very flagrant to not just kill him, but to cut his head off to bring it on a platter. This is very gruesome and dark, and it just shows a, a real gone over to wickedness that John gets pulled into here. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite stories involving John that is not kept in the Gospel of Mark, but you'll find it in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter eleven, I think it is. It's the last moments of John's life. Um, he's in a he's in a prison, and he's outside the Promised Land, which is interesting. He's in a place called Machaerus, and so he's outside the Promised Land. And he's waiting for the Messiah to bring about the the kingdom, right? To restore the kingdom. He's expecting, you know, Rome to be overthrown and David's throne is going to be reestablished and Jesus is going to be that guy and everything is going wrong. Like he's, he's arrested. He's in prison. He's facing execution. Jesus, meanwhile, is going around talking about death and resurrection. And John's going now, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Not the kingdom I'm waiting for. <laughs> Wait a yeah, minute. Hang on a minute. <laughs> And so John, and I love this story because it just reveals the tender heart of the Savior toward John in the midst of his suffering. He sends two disciples to Jesus, and they have a question that's kind of shocking. It's the last recorded thoughts of John the Baptist. But they come and they say, John sent us, and he wants to know, are you really the Messiah, or should we look for someone else? Which is wild. Like, John was there in the Jordan. Like, he saw the heavens open up, the voice of God declaring, this is my son. He's Surely he's seen and heard about all that Jesus has done. And yet, at the end, this is so not according to his expectations that he begins to doubt everything he thought he once knew, for sure. Even to the point where it's like, Were you, are you really the Messiah? And I love Jesus' response when he's two parts of it, and both of them are really beautiful. He quotes Isaiah chapter 35 and Isaiah 61 back to John the Baptist's disciples, and he says, I want you to go back and I want you to tell John what you've seen. The blind receive sight, the deaf are hearing, the, the lame are leaping, you know, and then he says the dead are raised, and if you go back and you read Isaiah, he's quoting word for word, 
Except when he says the dead are raised, that's not in the original of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And the original of Isaiah says he frees the captives mm-hmm. and he breaks chains. Surely John's John sitting in jail. Yeah, he's he's like if there's anything like he's released from prison. That's yeah, what I want. Break the like chains. Yeah, that's what I want. But Jesus says, no, no, no. You want to know where you're going to be freed? Mm, yeah. Resurrection. Yeah. I am the God who raises the dead. You know, you could live in this world, this broken world. For years and years and years and years and never suffer death, and yet you're a captive to mm. a world that's broken and fallen and filled with so much tragedy. I've come to defeat it. I've come to defeat death itself. So go tell him not to despair as he's as he awaits the axe, because I am the God who raises mm. the dead. That's, that's how yeah. I liberate people from captivity. Yeah. And then as they're walking away with that message, Jesus just doesn't let them walk away. Like within earshot, as everybody's hearing this, like, oh my goodness, John, the John is doubting. Is he still saved? Is you know what's the, what's the deal with him? Jesus says, I want everyone to know this, and then he praises John the Baptist and says, I want you all to know that no one has ever been born of women that's a greater prophet than that man. Mm-hmm. And so, no doubt, they go back and they tell John that because it, that's so comforting to me. Because in those moments where you doubt, but you just will not let go of the yeah. Lord. And you go to the Lord. That's where he sent. Yeah. You talk about John's boldness, that he would send something like that to the Messiah, claiming to be the Messiah, who could smite him, you yeah. know, Old Testament yeah. style. Um, but that he was bold enough to bring his doubts to straight to Jesus. Yeah, and we're right after the place where it says he marveled at their unbelief, and here comes John with mm-hmm. very serious doubts. Yep. And Jesus doesn't say in the midst of those doubts, oh, you doubt me, you're out. Mm-hmm. He says, wow, you're going through that much pain, you're in prison, you're facing death, and you're refusing to let go of me. You might be hanging on to me by your fingernails. Yep. But in the midst of your suffering, you will not let me go. There's not a greater prophet that's ever lived than that guy with that kind of faith. And so that's an encouragement to those of us who doubt, who wonder where God is, but we just can't let go of him. Yep. He's honored that's with beautiful. that. Mm-hmm. He, he Just like he praises John, he, he would praise those that refuse to let go of him, mm-hmm. um, especially in the midst of, of suffering and yep. hardship. I'm even honored for John's sake that this whole story makes it in to the scriptures. It's kind of, it almost feels like an, an aside as you're going through it. You know, the action stops and goes, oh, by the way, let's tell this whole long, it's actually a pretty long story for a gospel of Mark where things are moving really quickly. But he takes time and he stops and he tells the story of the ending of John's life. So I don't know. I'm just kind of honored for John that he makes mm-hmm. it in in such big pieces, even though um, he's not in much of the actual gospel action as it's going through. Yeah, John is a, he's such an incredible man. He just, he loves the underdog. He defends the defenseless. He he goes after power. He's fearless. Mm-hmm. He He's absolutely trusting in God and the Lord used him mightily. And I'm, you know, God loved him. You know, I think of him being in the womb from the days of his womb when Jesus, a pregnant Mary comes along with Jesus in her belly and John is leaping in the womb. Um, even as a six-month-old unborn baby, like the spirit was all over this yeah. guy from from before birth, uh, even to death. And it says, when the disciples heard it, they came and took his body and they laid it in the tomb. Mm-hmm. And that is the last we'll hear of John the Baptist. Um, so the next miracle, very famous miracle. It's one of the one of two miracles 
in that's in every single one of the four gospels, and it's the feeding of the five thousand. It says the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So they're coming back, you know, hey, we cast out demons, we've been healing people, like, oh my goodness, this really works, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. So it, which is like you've been hot and heavy, running around, doing ministry, healing people, being in the midst of the mess. And so immediately when they come back, he doesn't say, all right, again, like there's a wisdom in Jesus saying, okay, now you need to go away by yourselves to a desolate place where there's no people. (laughs) There's no people to bug you and demand things of you and go rest a while. So hear that. For those of you who are workaholics that can never set it down, Jesus is saying, okay, after you do a hard season of ministry where you're really into it, you need to go away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. Can can do, do my workaholics hear me? Amen, right? <laughs> we're we're secretly really terrible at this in the Cast and Smith house. <laughs> yeah. The almost ironic thing about it though is if you keep going, it is a big old butt in there. Yep. So and Jesus going. is going to get Anyway, we'll see. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. I can relate to that. There have been many a days where my lunchbox sits in the fridge all day. I can't relate to that. I never forget to eat. I don't understand that in people. Somebody's like, I forgot to eat lunch. Like, who does that? Yeah, and I look like someone who never forgets to eat lunch. So anyway, many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves, and now many saw them going and recognized them, and so they ran there on foot. So you got to imagine, they get in a boat, and they're like, get us away from these people. We're tired. We need a minute. So even now, you know, before it was just Jesus getting mobbed because he was the one doing the miracles. Now all of them are getting mobbed to where they couldn't even eat, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. And so you can imagine them, like, here's the escape. Finally. <laughs> Finally, run. But the people are on the shore and saw them going, and they recognize them. And so they run on foot from all the towns (laughs) to get there ahead of them so that when the boat lands, oh, here's all the people again. (laughs) And I just have to say that reading this as a parent, it was almost funny to read it in that context. It's kind of like, oh, I need a minute. Just, Just give me a minute. Just give me a minute. And then it's almost like they run ahead, and they know exactly what you need, and they go, and they're there. And they're just there again. I they're, feel it. I feel it. They're always there. <laughs> they're always there. We love them and they're always there. <laughs> so when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that is where I am so different from Jesus. And this is really truly a convicting thing in reading this this week because, you know, for whenever I find myself in a position where I say, I just need a break, like I just need a break. I have found that that is probably one of the most dangerous places I can be emotionally and spiritually. Not even kidding. I'm not, this is not hyperbole. When I think, oh, I've come to the end of my resources and I cannot do this anymore. I need a break. And I found that that's not good for me. Um, but what Jesus did is when people came at him, instead of being like, oh my goodness, just go away, just give us a minute, the fact that his heart was turned with compassion to see them. And just for the the other side of it, you know, it's not wrong, I think, to need a break. I'm not saying that it's wrong that way. But I find for myself that I have learned many times that when I say that, 
then it becomes almost like a, and I deserve a break, or I will not be able to function without this. And I found in those times that it helps me to just pull back and to say, Lord, you know what I need? You know, I need a break, make it happen for me. And but clearly that was not what was in store for the disciples here because God had a bigger mission for them here. So, Yeah, and when you don't do that, you know, when you don't preach to yourself and you have the blow-up moment because you're at the end of your patience, the work in repairing the blow-up is always way more exhausting <laughs> than so had true. you been compassionate in the first so place. True. And I feel worse afterwards. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> It doesn't help anything. The Lord will provide the rest. I think that's always been the thing that I've had to hold on to is that he sees me, he knows what I need, and he will provide the rest when it is actually time for that rest. Mm -hmm. So hold on to him. Yeah, and it's not onto the plan to get away and rest. (laughs) It's interesting that even though Jesus had commissioned them to go out and do all these things and now they're worn out and he knows that they need rest and all the people are chasing, it's like he stands forward and in some sense, you know, he's like, hey. I'm going to teach and I'm going to do it. But then after they've been sitting a while, it grew late and his disciples came to him and said, man, this is a a desolate place. And the hour's now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you, you give them something to eat. Which I love because if you think about where the disciples are coming from, they've seen Jesus heal people. They've seen Jesus cast out demons, but they have yet to see Jesus turn nothing into something. They've yet to see Jesus do that kind of miracle. So it's almost like Jesus is leading them along and teaching them and showing them kind of like, all right, we've done these. You figured this one out. Now let me, let me do something new. Let's try something new together. You go show, feed them, Mm -hmm. see what happens. So yeah, you think about all the miracles and we've seen, okay, he can raise the dead. He can cure leprosy. He can, you know, the blind are seeing he's calming storms. But like you said, when he creates out of nothing, there's only one being in the yeah, universe that creates out of nothing. And he did it at the beginning of the universe when he spoke the universe out of nothing into everything that we know. And so here he's literally going to take this limited supply and he is going to create out of nothing an abundant supply, mm-hmm. which is speaking to his role as a creator. Mm-hmm. Like this is God we're dealing with. And so he says, you give them something to eat. And they said, uh, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he <laughs> said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, we have five loaves and two fish. <laughs> this is not enough to feed a crowd of 5,000 men, not right. counting women and children. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, which I would have loved to have seen how this played out. <laughs> like, what are they thinking is going to happen here? So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves. What's that sound like? Communion. It sounds like communion, doesn't it? It's always this pattern. He (laughs) looks to heaven, he blesses, gives thanks, breaks the bread, and gives it to the disciples (laughs) to set before the people. Like this is God's way of bringing salvation to hungry people, right? And so he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were all satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the bread. Yeah. So 12 (laughs) disciples, right? So here they are at the, at the end of all their work. And this isn't just, Oh, look, Jesus miscounted and we have 12 baskets left over. No, he's, he's taking care now of his apostles Mm -hmm. and he has so perfectly multiplied all this 
that each of the apostles now has their own basket, which is just, cool. it's wonderful. He's his, a miracle of precision here. Mm-hmm. And those and interesting, they hadn't had time to stop and eat, right? So yeah. Even in his not giving them rest and doing this miracle, he gives them time to sit down and eat. Yeah. We, we assume, I don't know. Maybe they just <laughs> kept running and picking up pieces of bread. <laughs> they, were really <laughs> they were really skinny. They were really skinny. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So this is an amazing miracle. And being Mark, he tells the abbreviated story. If you want to know more about this miracle, you go to John 6. And this is where Jesus, you know, during this miracle is where he says, Mm -hmm. I am the bread of life. And he's comparing himself to the bread that fell from heaven. And what I love of that, he says, I am the manna, the manna that God provided from heaven um, he's more than just an Elijah. Elijah took the bread that God multiplied, right, and and he ate it, right? He took the flour and the oil that God multiplied and he ate. But here you have a man who's doing the multiplying, which is saying mm-hmm. God is in the flesh. He's not just Elijah. He's the God of Elijah. Mm-hmm. He's not just Moses. He's the God of Moses who provides the manna from heaven mm-hmm. to feed all the people. Mm-hmm. And just like that manna, you know, think about the way that the manna fell down it didn't come down and say, okay, show me your papers, <laughs> you know, before you're allowed to take up and eat, I need to make sure that you're a righteous person and a moral person and that you have Jewish bloodline or that you're male or female or any of that. Yeah. Like it just came down freely available to anyone who would take of it. You just had to take it. And that's Jesus, the mm-hmm. bread of life. He's free. It's the most unbelievably inclusive religion mm-hmm. that's out there. There's no barrier that separates you from Jesus except your unwillingness to take up and eat, mm. you know, to grab hold of the bread of life and let it nourish you and bring you life. Mm, that's good. So then we come to the fifth and the final miracle, also very famous one. And so uh, he, <laughs> Jesus, and we talked about this, he's pinballing back and forth all over the Sea of Galilee in this boat, <laughs> right? Like, Just sit still for a minute. Come on. <laughs> so immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. And you remember like, okay, he went this way. The people follow him. The story before that, when he got into the boat, he sent a storm and he's sleeping in the boat. If I'm a disciple, every time Jesus tells me to get in the boat. <laughs> Can we just walk, please? <laughs> Seriously, because, you know, like, okay, he's going to use this as a teaching moment somehow. You know, we we catch this amount of fish to where our boats are sinking. He's sending storms (laughs) like something's going to happen. And sure enough, it does. It says immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. Remember, they're tired. Okay, it's true. They haven't had that rest promised. Yeah. Uh, If they had naps, we're not told about it. Mm. You know, they may have eaten from the baskets. Mm -hmm. But yeah, immediately he makes them get into the boat. And how do you get to the other side? Well, in that world, in a fishing boat, you didn't throw up a sail. You know, it's it's not that wide. The Sea of Galilee is nine miles wide or so, I think. And so they take off and they're rowing, which is really strenuous. Like you get exhausted really quickly (laughs) from rowing. And like if you're me... You become disabled for days afterwards when your shoulders no longer work. Me too, man. Go kayaking and I can't stand up straight. But, you know, he is the one who takes on dismissing the crowd. Okay, thank you for showing up. I'm going to let my disciples disappear while you're focused on me. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain to pray. And that's pretty wild that Mm. the Son of God needs to go be alone to pray. Amen. <laughs> like, why is that significant? Well, I mean, he had 
direct access to the father. So you would think that there would be just kind of an intuition and knowing just do whatever God would do. But it seems like there was a dependence that he recognized in himself, even in his perfection, Mm -hmm. that he had a dependence on his father's word on the Holy Spirit, I guess is what I would say, that he needed to know what his father wanted. He needed to commune with his father, spend Mm -hmm. time with his father. But it, you know, it's like Jesus never prayed a prayer of repentance. Hmm, yeah. You know, he never said, "Oh Lord, I've I've gotten myself into a mess now, and I need mm-hmm. you to show up." But it was just something he longed for. Yeah. Like he enjoyed it. He needed it. He knew that it was life giving. He knew that, like even God in the flesh, hmm. with perfect righteousness, knew that he needed time with the Father. Mm-hmm. Like it was essential for him, and he made it made it. A priority, and so he goes up on this mountain to pray by himself. And it says, "When evening came, the boats out on the sea, and he alone was on the land. And he saw that they were making headway very painfully. So these already tired apostles are rowing and rowing and rowing, for the wind was against them. If you've ever rowed into the wind, <laughs> thank you. Oh, it's not pleasant. It's not <laughs> pleasant at all. That makes me think of our last kayaking thing from yes. a few weeks ago, where my kayak sank." <laughs> From the waves coming over the side of my kayak. And I was coming to you and rowing into the wind. (laughs) I'm coming. I'm coming. Yeah. And for some reason, my kayak was sitting lower in the water than yours. Ah. Still can't figure that one out. (laughs) But anyway, um, so the wind was against them and about the fourth watch of the night. So to understand the watches come in three hours. So, you know, the first watch is 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., then 9 to 12, and on and on and on, and then it repeats through the night. So when it says the fourth watch of the night, it's 3 a.m. in the morning to 6 a.m. And so it's totally dark out. They went out there when evening was started, which means they've been out there for nine hours or so rowing. I can't even begin to imagine how exhausted you would be I would just let the wind take me at a certain point. Yeah, really. Yeah, but I mean, they're they're being obedient. Jesus told them <laughs> to go true. to the other side, so they keep rowing, That's right? true. And they've got to be worn out, and as you're worn out, you're out in the middle of the sea, and if you go down in the dark, in the waves, in this storm, you're not going to have the strength to make it. You can, you're not going to swim three miles to the shore. Yeah. So this now becomes a matter of life and death, and in the middle of this... Fourth watch of the night, Jesus comes out to them walking on the sea. And remember, like, if you're them, you're terrified because, well, before Jesus was sleeping in the boat in the previous miracle, and he just gets up and says, you know, hush, be still, and the storm goes quiet and the sea calms down. But now they're out in the middle of the sea, hmm. and Jesus isn't with them this time. And so they're freaked out. They're exhausted. It's like another place where Jesus is stretching them a little bit more. Yeah. Like a good teacher. He's giving them another lesson. But this time I'm not going to be with you in the boat. Yeah. Interesting. That, that is interesting. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, it's a ghost. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke and said to them, I love this sermon, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Um, that sermon you find in one form or another all throughout the scriptures, and I love this sermon. So they, they're they out there, they're exhausted, they're tired, it's dark, they feel like death is at their doorstep, and all of a sudden they see Jesus, they think he's a ghost, and then he comes and he speaks a word, and it's this, take heart, which literally means like take courage, be courageous. And when it says, it is I, the way that the, the this is translated into the English from the Greek, 
he's not saying it is I. It's just two words in the Greek. It's ego and me, which literally means I am. And if you're a student of the Bible, your ears should perk up. Why? Well, because the burning bush. The burning bush. <laughs> this is a, the first time that God ever reveals his name. He says, I am, hmm. right? He's the great I am. And so Jesus is coming to them and he's like, I want you to be courageous. Take heart. I am. Hmm. You know, later in when he's arrested, he says, I am. And the, the Roman soldiers fall down. Jesus loves these I am statements in the mm-hmm. gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. Like he loves these I am statements. And so he says, take heart. I am do not be afraid. Mm-hmm. The most repeated command of Jesus and the most repeated command of the Bible is don't be afraid. And it's, you know, he is the only figure that can look at you and say, don't be afraid, who has the credibility to mm-hmm. say that. And he only says it based on his identity. You mm-hmm. know, it's only because of who I am that I can even say that. Yeah. And he's, you know, the Bible later on, he'll, Jesus will declare, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, which means he knows all of your yesterdays. He knows everything that's happening to you today. He knows all of your tomorrows. And if there was ever one who had the credibility or the authority to look at you and say, you have no reason to fear, mm-hmm. it's him. He knows the story. And so, you know, we we would do well to remember that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. He knows mm-hmm. the entirety of the story, even the bad things. Mm-hmm. And he knows in his mercy, it's all going to turn out okay. Do not be afraid. And so he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Mm-hmm. And here it is again. So that kind of went flat, right? That's yeah. Idea. The wind ceased. It's just dead mm-hmm. right there. And again, they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And Mm so, you know, here he is. And, you know, he doesn't walk away from his disciples when he's like, you don't get it. Come on. Like (laughs) he presses on with them because it's, you you can imagine it would be hard to really wrap your mind around the fact that God in the flesh is with you in a boat. Mm -hmm. The one who controls the wind and the waves, the one who creates out of nothing, the one who is life to the world, you know, is in the boat with you. And so they're they're missing all this. Peter, you know, the, it's interesting you asked the question earlier mm-hmm. about Mark. Yeah, because if you read this in other uh, gospels or at least in, is it Matthew or is it all of them? I don't I didn't look into that. And Matthew for sure and Luke. Um you see that there's a whole other part of this story where Peter says, "Hey, can I do that?" <laughs> and Jesus said, "Sure, come on out." And when Jesus, when Peter looked down at the waves, he began to sink, and Jesus reached out and lifted him up. I just found it interesting that that didn't get recorded here. And the understanding is that Mark is taking down what Peter has said and putting it into um, this gospel. So I'm curious if it was some kind of, I mean, do you have an opinion? Was he being humble or was he being like, I don't want that part about yeah. sinking to make it in? Or? Yeah, Peter's like, let's leave that part out. <laughs> <laughs> but Luke and Matthew contain it. Um and I think it's telling us something. Like I think the where Mark leaves it out, Matthew and, and Luke want us to see the reality behind what Jesus is teaching here. Because there's the very straightforward teaching that is, you know, Jesus is in control. We don't need to fear. He's by the way, he's the one who sent him out into the storm again. That's true. He it, can it he, was by their his command that they were there at yeah. all. 
And guess who controls the wind and the waves? Well, he doesn't just control them when they calm down, (laughs) you know. He controls them when they rage on. And so he sends them out by themselves because he wants to teach them something. When you've come to the end of your rope, when you don't have the strength to continue, when you are tempted to despair at the circumstances all around you, I want you to remember that even from a distance, I got you. Don't fear. Take courage. Like, if I've called you to a mission, go across this lake. Mm -hmm. Go across the sea. And you're obedient and you're carrying out what I've commanded you to do. I'm going to take care of you. Don't fear. And that's part of the the whole thing when Peter says to Jesus, command me to get out of the boat. He literally says to Jesus, I want you to command me to get out of the boat and walk on the water and come to you. Well, why does why would Peter say it that way? Like if I were saying it, it would be like, hey, can I do that? Right. You know, but Peter says, no, no, no. I want you to command me to walk to you on the water because if Jesus commands it, there is safety in it. Mm-hmm. And so sure enough, Peter gets out of the boat and he walks to Jesus on the water. And so long as he's keeping his eyes on Jesus, he's succeeding. And the moment he looks at the wind and the waves, which tells you, If you're looking at the wind and the waves, you know, the white water and everything else, there's a pretty vicious storm that he's walking on. The moment he looks at his circumstances, he begins to sink. And it's like, okay, well, what's the message behind that? And I think this is it. If you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know that when the Bible talks about waters, particularly deep waters, it brings this connotation of death and judgment. So the Red Sea, the flood, Jonah, all those stories that involve water, it's it's compared to death. And the New Testament baptism going in the waters is compared to a death and a resurrection. That's what it symbolizes. And so what are you to imagine when the disciples are out in the boat and they're going, oh my gosh, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And here comes Jesus. And what is he, what's he treading on? It's on top of judgment. He's on top of, of the water. Mm-hmm. He's on top of the very emblem of death and judgment. It does not swallow him up. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing. a beautiful, beautiful picture. But now even beyond that, this is where it gets crazy. Peter says, can I do that? Mm-hmm. And what does the story teach? Hey, you get out of the boat. And and you've got your eyes fixed on me. Mm-hmm. It has no hold on you either. Mm-hmm. It will not swallow you up. And the moment he looks at his circumstances, he starts to sink. And you think, well, is this teaching work salvation? You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like his faith failed. No, but he cries out, Lord, save me and all those other gospels. And without hesitation, Jesus's hand is Lifted right there. Right up. Right there to save them and no to lecture, spare them. No yeah. shaming. No, oh man, you better do it right next time. You might not get saved then. Yeah, it's very it's, tender. It is tender, and he's that's just the way our God is. But in all of these stories, you can. It's hard. Like if you were there, you would be like, God, why did you allow this? That's one of the questions that's kind of behind all these stories. It's John the Baptist in a prison going, Why are you allowing this? It's the disciples in a storm. God, why are you allowing this? It's it's the bleeding woman. Why would you allow this for 12 years? You know, you got to imagine all of these people have been making those prayers that are asking why. And in every one of those cases, God is going to take the suffering that they've real suffering, real tears. God's not indifferent to suffering. He grieves with those who grieve. And yet he's going to use their very suffering to make them more beautiful Mm -hmm. for the cause of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. The disciples will have a far better ministry because they've seen Jesus show up in storm after storm. Yeah. 
this woman more so than they would have been if they would have just had it easy walking through life with him. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. God God never wastes afflictions. Mm. He uses them. You know, it's like Paul says these these momentary light and momentary afflictions, which, you know, Paul never <laughs> he didn't have light and momentary afflictions by my <laughs> standards, but when he considers them next to the weight of glory for all of eternity, that's mm. What are these? You know, they're they're preparing for us a weight of glory. And you see Jesus using all of these things again and again to train up his church that suffering is is merely a pathway to glory when it's done in his name. It's almost easier to look back on life and say, Oh, I remember that when that suffering happened and I grew so much through that. You know, the trick for me is looking at where I am right now and when I get frustrated or when I, you know, I'm still kind of distracted by these poor disciples that just want to break and didn't get it. I'm sorry. It's my mom's heart. I'm going, come on, just let him sit down for a minute. Um, but it's harder in the moment to have that kind of perspective. And I think that's why we need one another. That's why mm-hmm. we need to be in community um, so that we can have people who remind us that say, hey, remember when you were going through this? I was there. I saw it. I saw how Jesus delivered you. Um, so if you are just a plug, if you're not in community, if you're not connected with people who see your story unfolding and who can remind you of God's faithfulness, um, that's, that's something that, um, that he wants to train in us. He wants to train in us the ability to walk in faith, even when the waves are crashing all around us. And he uses other people to do that quite often. Yeah. In the Old Testament, I'm sure that I've mentioned this before, but in the Old Testament, whenever God's people would be coming up against like unbelievably, seemingly impossible odds and they were on the verge of defeat and then God would miraculously deliver them and do some amazing things, some beautiful thing at the, whenever, when he would do that at the end of it, he would say, okay, I want you to gather up some stones and I want you to make a memorial. So that as you walked around Israel in those days, you were constantly coming across memorials that were reminders that God overcame Mm -hmm. impossible odds again and again and again in the history of Israel. And that's such a good practice for us to do. You know, when you're up against those impossible odds, it's good to have memorial stones that have littered your life, you know, that where you're like, man, that seemed impossible and God delivered me. And that was really painful. And God showed up and did amazing things through the pain, Mm -hmm. through the suffering. And to have those in your mind so that when you come to the next season of what seems like impossible odds, Mm -hmm. you pull out those memorial stones and you're like, God was faithful again and again and again and again and again, and he will be faithful again. Amen. And so we come to our last one. It says, when they had crossed over, so they finally get out of the boat. Presumably they've lost the crowds. And God, <laughs> God sent a storm so they couldn't follow him, right? <laughs> when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and they moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized them. No! <laughs> They're back. And ran about. I think this is a whole new people, right? <laughs> and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Mm. And wherever he came... Can you imagine, like, I'm exhausted just reading this. Mm -hmm. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. Makes Mm -hmm. me wonder if the story of the bleeding woman from last week had spread. Mm -hmm. They just want to touch the fringe of his garment. And if you remember, 
the tassels of the garment was what symbolized righteousness and obedience to the law. And so they recognized there's something about this man's righteousness that has power. That's why they mm-hmm. want to touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Hmm. No failures. Mm-hmm. His righteousness never fails. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what exactly, you know, should be the last word here, but, you know, one of the things you take away is this story starts with Jesus going to the place of his childhood, right? And he's rejected. And yet the rest of the chapter is we find a savior who will not turn anyone away. Mm -hmm. He's constantly mobbed, even through his exhaustion, Mm -hmm. and he does not turn the people away. He serves them. And even when they're coming to him, not necessarily for him, but for what he provides for them. I think that's a hard, you know, hard place to be sometimes is when you feel like you're giving because people need from you versus just wanting to be with you. Yeah. You know, but on a personal note on that, I'll just I'll just share this. Um, You know, there's there's a difference between people wanting what you can provide and people wanting you. And you got to remember, Jesus is human. You know, when he sees the people and they're clamoring for him and racing to him, but they don't want him. They want his healing. Mm -hmm. They want his stuff. They want him to give bread. They want whatever. Um, That's a lonely place to be. I remember, and there's so many people who can relate to that because I've told this story before. And after I'll share this message, I always get people who come to me and they're like, oh, my gosh, me too. But in ministry, you're you're surrounded by a lot of people, and you know some people respect you, some people don't have any use for you. But you know, for the most part, you have a lot of people who are you know wanting you, and so you feel like you feel that level of respect. You appreciate being needed. You appreciate it, all that. But there came a time where I was like, I remember talking with Laura, and I was like, man, I am tired, and I feel like I'm constantly in need, but I don't feel like people are seeking me. They're seeking my office or they're seeking a pastor or they're seeking someone to teach or to do something like that. And just as kind of like a, a dismissive exercise, you know, I took out my phone and I started saying, I wonder when the last time someone called me because they enjoyed me and just wanted to be with me was versus somebody needs something. I took out my phone and I scrolled through a day and I was like, OK, well, not today and yesterday and not two days, not three days not this week, and I'd made it to almost a full two weeks since the last time I'd heard from somebody who was seeking me. Mm. And it crushed me, and I had to put my phone down, and I began to realize that in the midst of ministry, in the midst of doing life with other people, I was really alone. And it's 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 actually a real encouragement to me to be able to look at a savior who looks over Jerusalem and says, man, how I've longed to gather you like a mother hen gathers chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. And you're like, wait a minute. What do you mean, Jesus? They're clamoring for you all throughout your ministry. You're surrounded by thousands of people. They're chasing after you. What do you mean? And and the answer is they were after what I could provide. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted my healing. They wanted my food. They wanted, you know, the things that I could give, but they weren't after me. And if you can relate to that, you got a savior who can relate to you. Mm -hmm. And the reason why he goes through the ministry is so that there will never be a moment ever where you do not have a friend Mm -hmm. in the most high, the one who creates out of nothing, the one who brings life, the one who multiplies, the one who brings blessing out of suffering. That 
is your friend. And Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are his friend. And he doesn't give up. You know, his hometown rejects him, but he will never turn anyone away who seeks him. And that's one of the cool messages of this chapter. You know, he just does not turn people away who seek him. So, seek him. Seek him. Amen. Love it. All right, well, you got to say the whole, that's a good word thing, because it feels weird coming out of my mouth now. (laughs) That's a good word, and I think we'll end on that one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This was a good one. I guess it's just like a maiden voyage. You did amazing. This was really good. Well, thank you for joining me, Laura. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) And right now, Laura's like, get well, Mark. Get well, Mark. Get Get well, Mark. Mark. So anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure. I, like I've said before, if nobody listened to this podcast, we would still do them because it's just it's fun great. to talk about Jesus. It, it really is. And he it's good is for beautiful. my soul. And if there's people out there listening, hopefully this encouraged you and made you think more of your Savior and how privileged and wonderful it is to be able to call him our friend. Um, the God of the universe calls himself our friend. That's wonderful. Um, anyway, like and subscribe on Apple, iTunes, and Google Play, and whatever else Mark always you says. You really need Mark here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go back and listen to another episode and listen to his ending. That's that's what I meant to say. You're a big picture guy, aren't you? <laughs> so anyway, we love you. Thank you so much for joining us today. God bless. Bye. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.